and grab it and turn with me to uh, John 13. That's where we're going to be working this morning. We're going to be in John 13. We'll be closing out this chapter here together, looking at just three verses. So would you stand with me? I know we're jumping right into it, but would you just stand with me now and let's look at God's Word together. I had someone ask me a couple weeks back who was visiting why we stand uh, for the reading of Scripture, and I, I said what I normally say to that, uh, that we stand because this is the Word of God, and, and there's nothing more important that's going to be said today than what's about to be read to you. But I also told them we stand because it serves as a tangible, as a visible, as a, as a, as a reminder to me, as a reminder to me, that it isn't me who is here to instruct and teach, uh, but I'm here as part of the congregation to be taught today by our Holy Spirit, uh, who is speaking through His Word to us today. So this is John 13. We're focusing on 36 through 38, but I'm going to start at 31 just to give us a little context. When He had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to be here today, as has already been expressed, as we have already prayed. God, we thank you that you have placed us in this world, in a place where we can gather freely, where we can gather together as your people without fear of persecution, without fear of of harm. But you have provided for us a place where we can be as the gathered church here together. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in us now, that you would speak to us through your Spirit, that you would, that you would wake us up here this morning, that you would wake me up, that you would shake me just enough that I might be drawn closer and closer to you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's hard... It's hard to watch uh, one of your heroes fall. You know, you know it's, it's, tough to, it's tough to watch the person that you've been following, the person that you've been cheering for, the person that you have been, the person that you've really grown to love and appreciate. It's tough to watch them slip. It's tough to watch them hit rock bottom, maybe as a parent with a child and, or maybe with a maybe with a friend, but we see this all the time. I mean, we see this all the time with like athletes, right? So like on a superficial level, we see this with athletes all the time who, who play just one season too many, right? And they aren't the same player though. They're not able to do the same things they used to be able to do. 
We see this all the time. More personally, we see this and we feel this, or at least I feel this in our own relationships. We, we said last week, and it's important, and it's worth noting again, that Judas, that Judas wasn't at the table in the upper room. He wasn't with the other disciples as an outsider. He wasn't there as a guest. He wasn't there as a visitor. He was there as their friend. He was there as their brother, as a fellow disciple who had been walking with Jesus over the last three years. And these guys, they shared all the marks of true uh, friendship. Okay, They shared time together, they shared in, in the similar traditions together, and they shared a mutual trust among them. My tendency is to forget that Judas was one of the guys in the boat when Jesus walked across the water out to them and told the storm to be quiet. I tend to forget that Judas was one of the guys carrying the basket of food as he miraculously fed the 5,000 on the hill outside the city. I mean, he was there. He was there. He was one of the good guys, okay? And they had all these memories of time they'd spent traveling together, time they'd spent learning together, of serving together. They'd all been together. And they'd been through victories and defeats together. Probably had all sorts of inside jokes together. You know, that's what friends develop over time, right? They develop little jokes that only they know. And if you're unfortunate enough to be uh, around two people who have one of these jokes and you don't know it, you're just in the worst possible situation imaginable because they're laughing and you're forced to laugh. And they know that you don't know what you're laughing at, right? So you can you imagine every time they walk down to the docks, and they were looking to get in a boat, and the disciples were like, hey, Peter, man, you're just going to walk across this time, right? Remember that last time when you fell? <laughs> and then the guy at the dock's like, huh, huh. Like, what's he talking about, man? Like, nobody walks on water. Remember that? They had, like, they had nicknames for each other. Do you ever think about that? We're actually told that they called Thomas the twin. That's a weird nickname. They called James and John the sons of thunder. That's an awesome nickname. <laughs> I'd give anything for that to be my nickname. You're one of the sons of thunder, aren't you? You know it. That's me. They had very real, very dynamic relationships. And Judas was one of them. And he broke that relationship. He betrayed not just Jesus in that moment. Man, he betrayed all of the other 11 disciples. And in that moment, one of the heroes, okay? One of the heroes of the ministry of Jesus fell. And this is what the evangelist said in 30. And back in verse 30, he said, when he fell, it was night. You see, darkness, darkness entered the room. But now here, now here at this point, as we jump to verse 36, we see a transition made. And we're not talking about Judas anymore at this point. At this point, we're talking about Peter. And like Judas, Peter had been part of the story for the last three years. He had been there for all of those milestone moments, all of those things that the disciples, that that our evangelists wrote down for us in the Gospels. And like Judas, Peter is there in the upper room. He is there taking part in this meal and wondering what in the world is about to happen during their time in Jerusalem. You see, we can forget that they went to Jerusalem thinking that they were prepared to walk the Jesus path. You know, they thought that a fight might be coming. 
In fact, over in, in, in John eleven sixteen, when Jesus was heading back to Jerusalem, Thomas had said to him, let us go also that we may die with him. You see, they thought they were ready. And we know that at some point along the way, Peter had picked up and started carrying a sword with him. That wasn't typical for a fisherman. That really wasn't what they, what they did, okay? It wasn't typical of the disciples either be walking around toting a sword. But at some point, Peter started carrying a sword underneath his, underneath his robe. But here now in this moment of need, what we see is that the similarities in Judas and Peter were not limited to their past experience, but also to their present failing. And the failure of these two disciples demonstrates the truth for us that there isn't anyone in this world who is immune to falling to temptation. Not a soul. And that's the first thing I want us to note here, is that anyone can fall. Anyone in this world, anyone in this room, anyone that you look up to, anyone can fall. Because you see, if Judas, who was a friend of Jesus, can fall, and if Peter, who is, also, who is always listed as the first disciple in the list of the disciples, if he can fall, why would, why would we for even a moment begin to think that we can't? Listen, anyone can fall. And we need to know that. Like we need to understand that. We need to walk in a conscious awareness that temptation is always out there for every single one of us. We need to know that. The Apostle Paul warned believers in the church at Corinth. This is what he told them, that, that everyone will be tempted. He said, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And that's the primary issue for Peter. He said, if anyone thinks he can stand, take heed, lest he fall. It's his overconfidence in himself. It's his spiritual arrogance. That's one of the first steps to falling in sin, is our spiritual arrogance. He believes, Peter believes, that he has it in him, whatever it is that it takes to, to stand. He's strong enough. He's capable enough. And this is the way it works in the world today. You see, we're told all the time, to trust our own hearts, right? You just need to trust your heart. You need to be true to yourself to think that we can do anything that we want to do as long as we try our best. But listen, our, our youngest right now, you saw him up here. Um, he's a real good sport. He never gets into trouble at all, obviously. Um, so he genuinely thinks right now in his heart, in the depths of his heart, that he is Spider-Man, Okay? I don't mean that he thinks Spider-Man is cool. I don't mean that he thinks one day it'd be cool to be Spider-Man. I mean that right now, he genuinely believes that he is Spider-Man. That his present and future outlook in this world right now, everything is preparing him for a future journey of swinging from buildings and fighting bad guys and saving innocent people. That's what he thinks his identity is right now. He's, he thinks he's Spider-Man. In fact, he's even got these little plastic things that go on his wrist. And if you buy silly string and put them in there, it shoots out like he's Spider-Man, right? But we know, at, at least I hope we know, that if my boy 
goes to the top of the Empire State Building and pulls the trigger, and this rinky-dink little toy somehow manages to shoot silly string webs out, and he attempts to swing over to the Chrysler Building, that it's going to go bad for him, okay? It's, if it were to even shoot out, it's not going to hold his weight. In fact, he is going to fall very quickly, just like Peter. Just like Peter. You see, Peter is standing on the edge of the building right now. He is eager. He thinks that he's ready, but he doesn't have the equipment to do the job. You see, it's his overconfidence in his own ability. And we see it right there in his response to Jesus in 37. Did you see that? Jesus tells him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And then Peter in 37 says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus, listen, Jesus just told him that he wasn't ready. That's what Jesus said. You're not ready. It's not time for you to follow me now. It's not your time. It was Jesus' time, but not Peter's. And Peter doesn't like that very much, okay? He doesn't like that Jesus would say that he cannot follow him when? Now. You can't follow me now. And so again, like a child, patience isn't Peter's thing, okay? John Calvin said, like a child, like an adult, like a human, patience isn't really Peter's thing, okay? I'm not picking on any kids here. I'm the most impatient human that I know, okay? But this is what John Calvin says. He said, this expression of Peter shows the opinion which we entertain from our very birth, which is that we attribute more to our strength than we ought to. You see, we think that we can handle it. We think that we can carry it because we're strong enough, man. We've learned a thing or two. So sure, when it comes to the spiritual disciplines, when it comes to walking in faith, I know that God calls us to walk in purity of heart, but I'm strong enough to watch that movie knowing full well that it's going to have all sorts of stuff that I don't need to be seeing. And I know that God tells us to let his word dwell richly in us, but I think I can listen to whatever type of music I want to listen to, whatever type of music I want to listen to any time of day, and those things aren't going to somehow get implanted in my brain and begin to replay over and over and over again, whether it's offensive or not. Listen to me, thinking that we have control over our eyes, thinking that we control what comes into our ears, thinking that we have control over our tongues, over our impulses, that's what got Peter into trouble. And if you look back at 37, what Peter is telling uh, Jesus here, listen to it. This, this, is, this is a little bit of an Adam Williams translation of what Peter's saying. He's saying, I can go wherever you go, and I'd be willing to bet my life on it. That's what Peter's saying, Jesus. He said, you're saying I can't go now. I'm telling you, I can go, and I'd be willing to lay down my life to prove it. It's that in his spiritual arrogance, he's also become spiritually ignorant. It's made him foolish. It's blinded him to his own reality. I had a coach tell me one time that an arrogant player, okay, that a cocky player, is just a player who hasn't learned what it tastes like to lose. He doesn't know what defeat is tastes like. Now let's be straight. It's not that they haven't lost. Everybody loses at some point. It's that they haven't learned. It's that they haven't understood what loss is. Peter had failed plenty of times. 
He constantly got the wrong answer. We're talking about a man who almost drowned out in the middle of the sea because he took his eyes off Jesus, thinking he could walk across water by himself, knowing full well he'd never walked across water by himself before that. We're talking about a guy who got the wrong answer nearly every single time that Jesus asked a question. And yet here he believes he's ready. But you see, he hadn't learned the truth that we've already said, that anyone can fall, that anyone can sink, even him, even you. Spiritual arrogance is one thing that trips us up and causes us to stumble. You know what the other is? It's spiritual apathy. And just to be clear on this, spiritual apathy doesn't grow out of a sense that we aren't going to be tempted. It grows out of the belief that our temptations, that my temptations are so unique that they are so strong, that they are so irresistible that nobody could ever resist them. And so you know what we do? We stop trying. We give up the fight. The spiritually arrogant say, nothing can beat me. Like Peter, they say, why can I not follow you now? I'm ready for the task. I'm ready for the journey. I'm ready for the fight. I will lay down my life for you. Look, Jesus, I've even got a sword. Let's go do this. But the spiritually apathetic are a little different. The spiritually apathetic say, we can't resist this one. It's not possible. So let's just get what we can and move on. We see that in Judas. We see that in Judas. We think that our temptation is so strong that nobody could resist. So we might as well get paid. But listen, Listen to me, men, let's just do men for a second. You are not the only one tempted to find your identity in your job, to find your identity in the amount of money that you make or what sort of car you drive or where your seats are in the stadium. Okay, you're not unique in that. And to the women, you're not, you aren't the only one tempted to find your identity in how busy you are and how pretty and put together your kids are, or how many people like your pictures of your perfectly photogenic family on Instagram or Facebook or wherever else. Those things do not make you unique. They are, as what this is what Paul said, they're common to man. He told the church, again in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He's saying that you aren't unique in your temptations. You're just one of us. You're just one of us. And so you aren't the only one tempted with lust. You aren't the only one tempted to cheat and take shortcuts. You aren't the only one who loses control of their anger or gets jealous when the people around them seem to always be one step ahead. Those are common temptations. And Judas gave up the fight. One of the great side effects of this type of thinking, by the way, that I see in the modern day is the battle we see raging in so many around us as we fight against depression and despair. So many people that I come into contact with not only feel, but express a belief that the world is stacked against them and that nearly everyone else, nearly everyone else around them has it easier or better than they do. But I want you to hear this. You aren't the only one in this room who has been betrayed. 
You are not the only one who has been abused. You are not the only one who has been hurt by those around you. You are not the only one afraid to trust because those in your past who were supposed to love and protect and guard and defend have actually have actually denied you, mistreated you, and abused you. You are not the only one who is afraid to get too close to people because you've been cast aside in the past. You are not the only one afraid to be known and loved and cherished. You are not the only one who's afraid of being found out for who you really are. You're just not. One of the enemy's greatest lies that he tries to convince people to believe is that everyone, that everyone has it easier than us. And that there is nobody in this world who would ever want to walk in the mess that is our life. It's to get us to forget that every person that we meet is not just a face, is not just a name, but a story. A story filled with highs and lows, with peaks and valleys. And that doesn't make us unique. It makes us human. J.C. Ryle said the seeds of every sin are latent in our hearts, even when renewed. And they only need occasion or carelessness or the withdrawal of God's grace for a season to put forth an abundant crop. Your temptation doesn't make you unique today. It makes you normal. And it reminds us that we have to fight. Paul continued that thought, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 10, where he told us that no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. And what he's doing there is he's reminding us that it is not us that are strong enough. It is not us that are faithful enough, but that God is faithful. This is what he says, that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He doesn't say that the temptation is going to go away. He says that the spirit is going to strengthen you to endure it. We have to understand that there is relief from temptation for us. And Peter still hasn't figured that out. Look back at verse 37 again. Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered. Here's 38. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. You see, Peter is still so eager to prove what he can do for Jesus He is still prone to that type of thinking that we often associate with the Pharisees, a type of thinking that says God will only accept us if we get our mess together, if we clean ourselves up and become totally and completely independent and capable of handling whatever comes our way. He's falling into the identity that says our worth to God that our worth to God is based on what we are able to accomplish for Him. That our skill, that our strength, that our abilities are, are what will somehow qualify us. Peter still thinks that he can prove himself to Jesus. Look again, Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. He's desperate to prove himself. He needs to prove himself. And he's in the mindset that he can prove his worth to Jesus. In fact, over in Mark 14, if you, if you were to turn there, you don't have to, but over in Mark 14, the evangelist there records the same event, but he also records Peter saying, even though they all fall away, talking about the other disciples. He's talking about the other disciples at the table. So even though they all fall away, I won't. I won't fall away. I will not. 
He's saying, all these other guys will let you down. Every single one of them at this table. They're all going to let you down. But I will be faithful. What's really interesting about the Gospel of Mark, too, is most people believe that it's written from Peter's perspective on things. That Mark followed with Peter, and Peter told him the story. In fact, Peter, so if you can imagine this, when Peter's retelling this story to Mark, he's telling him, hey, hey, and this is how stupid I was. I said that all the other ones going to fall away. I was such a moron. I said, all of them are going to fall away, and, and I'll be strong enough. And you know who the one was who, the, who denied him? It was me. He's saying, all these other guys will let you down, but I will be faithful. They're all going to prove themselves to be too weak. They're all going to be too afraid. But I, Peter, the rock, I will be strong. I will be brave. Jesus, I'm going to die for you. You see, I am worthy. I'm worthy to come with you now. Let's go. Let's take the hill together. Let's storm the castle together and win this fight. This is the cry of spiritual arrogance. It's the belief that it is best for Jesus if we are on his team because we are worthy. Judas fell into that sin of spiritual apathy. He gave up caring. In his mind, Jesus can do a lot of things. He can do a lot of things, but he can't clean me up. He can't right all my wrongs. He can't know what I've been through, what baggage I carry. It's all too much. It's too heavy. He can't know. We, t- we mentioned earlier in the service that today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. You know what that means in every church in the United States every single year? Do you mean to tell you? It means that we celebrate uh, that, that, that one day Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned and we'll stop murdering babies by the millions every year. That's the prayer. That's why we march on Washington this time of year. But you know what else it means in every single church in the United States, every single time, every single Sunday that this comes around every year? That somebody sits in that sanctuary thinking that because in the past they may have had an abortion that now God can't love them. That now I'm disqualified. Don't fall into that. Don't fall into that. That means that Jesus is offered for you has to be something greater than his own life. Don't fall into that. That will lead you into spiritual apathy. It will lead you into believing that this sin that you still think disqualifies you is too great for the Savior who paid for it. That's a destructive place to live, thinking that your bags are too heavy. Peter wants to be the champion. And he wants to take, he wants to step into the ring for Jesus. He wants to lay down his life for Jesus to show that he is worthy of being loved by Jesus. But that's the seeming paradox of the gospel right there. It's not that we are worthy. It's not that we can somehow qualify ourselves, but that God gives his grace to us in Christ to qualify us. It's that he qualifies us. Jesus doesn't need Peter to be the champion. He doesn't need Peter to take the hill. Only Jesus can do that. He doesn't need Peter to lay down his life for him. It's Peter who needs Jesus to lay down his life to save Peter. And that's us. Some of you came in here this morning feeling a little like Judas. You doubt that Jesus could ever love you, ever welcome you, ever lay down his life for you because you're a mess. You're a mess, man. You've had some stuff that that you still think disqualifies you from the kingdom. And I want to tell you something. You're right. 
You do. You've got a lot of mess that would disqualify you from the kingdom. If it were up to you, if it was up to your ability, you would be disqualified every day of the week and three times on Sunday. But that's why God gives grace. That's why God gives mercy. Because apart from Him, we're all disqualified. Every one of us. Some of you came in here feeling more like Peter. You're smart. You're pretty. You're strong. You're capable. You're talented. On the outside, you don't seem to have any mess. You're all cleaned up and ready to go. You'd be the first one picked if we were making teams. And in that pride and that spiritual arrogance, you're still holding on to the idea that you can take the hill, that you can win the game, and that Jesus will then be pleased to welcome you home. In fact, he might, he might even throw you a party or a parade. What Jesus didn't know, what Judas couldn't understand, and what many of us often forget is that Jesus doesn't need us to win the victory. He doesn't need us to conquer the enemy. He doesn't need us to take the hill. In fact, He never even asks us to do that because He knows that we aren't able. What He asks of us is that we find our rest in the fact that He has conquered, that He has taken the hill for us, and that in His victory we can find our hope. One of my favorite passages, and if you ever get a card from me, um, eventually, if you get enough cards, you'll have at the bottom, I always put a verse. And usually that verse reflects where my heart is on the day. It's not like subliminally trying to send you a message. It's it's me kind of telling you this is where I'm at right now. And one of my favorite verses or passages is from Psalm 37. Uh, Psalm 37, uh, verses 3 and 4. This is what God says to us in Psalm 37. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. He says, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's a good verse, right? You like that one. You can put that one on the bottom of your cards now. Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Nowhere in there does he say, go and conquer the land. He doesn't. And I said, go and win the fight for me. Go so you can hang the banner up and say, look how well we've done. He doesn't do that. He says, go and dwell in the land. Jesus took the hill for us at Calvary, you see. And there wasn't a banner there. There was a cross. And, and when he took the hill, they mocked him and they jeered him and they laughed at him. They said, what a fool. Come down from there if you are the son of God. That's who we're being asked to trust in. That in his death, he won the victory. Judas and Peter proved to us that anyone is capable of falling, but they also proved that nobody is beyond the reach of Jesus. They proved that anyone can be redeemed. Whatever baggage you came in here carrying today, I want to tell you, you can leave it here today. You can. You can turn it loose. You can give it over and you can surrender your life finding rest in him. No. No, we're not worthy of this. That's why it's grace. It's because we don't deserve it. Because we don't deserve him. But the length that he would go shows how much we were worth to him. Keith and Kristen Getty have a hymn that ends this way. It says, Two wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. You want to know what you were worth to Jesus? 
Look at the cross. You want to know how far he was willing to go to save you? Look at the cross. That's our hope. That's the offer of the gospel. It's knowing that we were so sinful that we deserve to die, but we were so loved by God that Jesus was willing to die for us. That's good news for me. Because I know my own heart. I know my own baggage. I know some of y'all's baggage. You've been kind enough to share it with me. Your baggage ain't got nothing on me. That's why I can look at you in the face and say grace is enough. Because I know myself. Because I know my own heart. That's how far Jesus was willing to go for me. He was willing to die. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. Stop finding your identity in the past, but find it here on the hill of victory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I struggle to believe. I struggle to trust that you would even want someone like me? That you would ever walk with me? That you would be associated with me? I struggle to believe that. I struggle to believe that you have paid for every sin that I will ever commit, for every act of rebellion that I will commit against you. I struggle to believe that as my father, you sit on the porch looking and waiting for me to turn to you, knowing that you are going to run out to me, wrap your arms around me, and bring me in the house. But I know there are folks here today who doubt that too. I don't think I'm unique in that. I pray that you would remind us over and over by your Holy Spirit, by his work in us, that you don't need us to fight for you. You have fought for us. You have won the victory for us. Lord, help us to walk in the freedom that you've provided. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.